Why does reducing beef emissions matter for Latin America and the Caribbean? And why did EasyJet drop its carbon offset scheme? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckosphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a climate communicator. Today is Thursday, September 29th. Let's jump right into today's news. The World Bank just pledged $2 billion to go towards Pakistan as floodwaters recede and the country mourns the loss of more than 1,600 people. Most crops have been wiped out, millions are displaced, and the World Health Organization warns of a second crisis looming, the waterborne illness crisis. The National Disaster Management Authority estimated that at least 100 people have already died from dengue fever, malaria, and typhoid. Pakistan has sent about 10,000 doctors, nurses, and other medical staff to the most impacted Sindh province. Meanwhile, Vietnam downgraded Typhoon Noru to a tropical depression as it made landfall in the Kiang Nam province yesterday. The storm brought 72 mile per hour or 117 kilometer per hour winds and heavy rainfall that could spur landslides and flooding. Vietnam is primarily vulnerable to extreme weather events, with predominantly flooding and landslides killing 139 people last year. Noru previously hit the Philippines as a Category 3 typhoon, killing at least 8 people and flooding farmlands. And Cuba joins Puerto Rico in being without electricity after Hurricane Ian hit the island nation as a Category 3. Ian destroyed Cuba's valuable tobacco farms, but no fatalities have been reported. Ian is now on top of Florida's West Coast as a strong Category 4, the strongest hurricane to hit the West Coast of that state in a century. Originally, it was heading straight for Tampa and St. Petersburg, but at the last minute, it curved a bit more than expected to hit Fort Myers and Naples more directly. The whole state is experiencing at least tropical storm impacts, if not the wrath of a hurricane in full force. Mass evacuations of the West Coast were underway until the evening prior. Climate change has made this hurricane more intense through sea level rise, increasing flooding in the area, and unusually warm Caribbean water providing fuel to the storm. Now let's look at some climate studies. A new analysis from the Center for American Progress determined that offshore wind gives 125 times more return in investment for taxpayers than investing in offshore oil and gas operations. This is because developers are willing to spend 125 times more for offshore wind lease sales than for offshore oil and gas leases. From 2019 to 2021, the average winning bid from offshore oil and gas lease sales was $47 per acre. By contrast, the average winning bid for wind lease sales was just over $5,900 per acre. Now, this could be just due to the fact that offshore wind is a newer form of energy, but it could also mean wind is just a better investment for taxpayers than fossil fuels. According to the report, when the social cost of carbon, or how much emitting greenhouse gases impacts the environment, human health, and the economy, is added to the mix, an acre of oil leases costs taxpayers $16,000, while an acre of gas leases costs $2,800. Offshore wind has practically no social cost of carbon to calculate. 
Then looking at the agriculture industry, a new report by the Inter-American Development Bank shows that reducing beef's carbon footprint will be a main factor in whether Latin America and the Caribbean are able to effectively decarbonize. Agriculture and related land use changes make up over half of this region's greenhouse gas emissions, and the main source of these emissions within this sector is cattle ranching and the beef industry. More than 77% of agriculture land globally is used for livestock, either for grazing or food production. The industry employs 15% of the region's people. And beef production is expected to increase by 125% by 2050 unless trends change. The banks say meeting the Paris Accord goals of keeping warming well below 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels will require sustained improvement in crop yield along with dietary changes to reduce meat demand, particularly red meat. It calls for shrinkage in agriculture land use in favor of biodiversity-rich and carbon storage ecosystems. Moreover, supply and demand need to be quelled in tandem for a lasting effect. We have several climate victories today. During the hydrogen energy ministerial meeting in Tokyo, more than 20 countries, including Japan, the U.S., Australia, and Germany, just agreed to boost their output of low-carbon hydrogen to at least 90 million tons by 2030. Low carbon means either hydrogen that's produced as a byproduct of gas called blue hydrogen with attached carbon capture and storage or hydrogen produced in an electrolyzer using clean energy called green hydrogen. Hydrogen can be used to reduce emissions in hard to decarbonize sectors like aviation, steel and chemicals, but hydrogen should be produced near where it's needed to reduce its chance of leaking. Past the harder stuff to reduce emissions, though, hydrogen is an expensive form of energy to rely on for everyday use. The 90 million number is just slightly under the 95 million ton target recommended by the International Energy Agency, or IEA, to maintain Paris goals. One of the main arguments I hear from people opposed to switching to clean energy is that solar and wind will contribute a lot to the landfill because their parts aren't recyclable. Well, in early August, the renewable energy company Simons Gamisa reported that recycled blades were used at the Kaskagee offshore wind farm in the North Sea. And now recycled blades are becoming available for onshore wind turbines too through the Recyclable Blades project. It turns out 85% of wind turbine blades are already able to be recycled, but most companies just stick their gigantic blades in the landfill. Recyclable Blades aims to change this trend. Simons Gamisa is planning to only produce fully recyclable wind turbines by 2024 and has partnered with Wind Europe and industry peers such as GE Renewable Energy and Vestas to call for a Europe-wide ban on trashing blades. In the aviation industry, EasyJet was originally the first to offer carbon offsets for its flights, and now it's the first to stop offering these offsets starting in December. Carbon offsets usually involve paying a third party to conserve a carbon-rich ecosystem, plant more trees, or invest in a carbon capture and storage project. There are no regulations around this industry, and it contains a lot of dishonest players that will be happy to double count a piece of land for an extra buck. Meanwhile, offsets provide an easy way for companies to claim they're carbon neutral without actually doing any of the hard work to reduce their emissions. All of this was determined to be the case after a joint investigation looked into EasyJet's carbon offset scheme in 2019. 
Due to this scrutiny, EasyJet has now announced that it will no longer offer carbon offset options for customers after December, saying it is instead going to focus on increasing the energy efficiency of its planes and investing in biofuels and carbon capture technology to reach its goal of 35% emissions reduction per passenger kilometer by 2035. The company claims these efforts are backed by the Science-Based Targets Initiative. EasyJet has already ordered 168 more energy efficiency planes from Airbus. Over to Australia now, where the Victoria state announced plans to invest $102 million or 94 million pounds in battery energy storage to help reach its goal of producing half of its electricity via wind and solar by 2030. This money will go towards developing 2.6 gigawatts of battery storage capacity by 2030 on its way of getting 6.3 gigawatts on the grid by 2035. And then in the U.S., the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, announced the development of an environmental justice office to address the disproportionate harm climate change and other environmental issues have on lower-income communities and communities of color. This larger office will combine three mid-level offices that cover environmental justice, civil rights, and conflict prevention and resolution to form one high-level office. The office will have an operating budget of $100 million and will oversee the implementation of a $3 billion climate and environmental justice block grant program created through the Inflation Reduction Act. Finally, Seattle, Washington just launched a $6.5 million Green New Deal opportunity fund to create climate resiliency hubs, electrify city-owned buildings by 2035, increase affordable housing, support climate data collection, and increase community engagement and education on climate issues and solutions. The resiliency hubs will give people a space to escape from wildfires and extreme heat events both of which are becoming more common in the Pacific Northwest. Time for the climate fails. The Australian government is currently considering 29 applications for new coal mines and mine expansions. If all of these were approved, they would emit as much as 17 billion tons of carbon dioxide, according to a study by Move Beyond Coal. That's equivalent to more than half of the country's emissions over the last year. It's unclear which way Prime Minister Albanese will lean as he has increased Australia's climate commitments, but he has also signaled support for gas and coal. Australia is the second largest exporter of coal in the world. Off the coast of Europe, hundreds of millions of cubic meters of methane gas is bubbling up from the sea as Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines were mysteriously gashed. And by mysterious, I mean sabotage. Even though neither pipeline is really being used after Russia shut off Nord Stream 1's flow earlier in the Russian-Ukrainian war and Nord Stream 2 never became operational, gas was still in both of these pipelines. Methane is 84 times a more potent greenhouse gas than CO2 for the first 20 years they're in the atmosphere. The Russians blame the U.S. for this sabotage and everyone else blames Russia. Meanwhile, in the UK, environmental groups condemn Prime Minister Truss for planning to suspend environmental protections in certain areas called investment zones. These areas will also receive big tax cuts, lax planning rules, and won't have to comply with having affordable housing nearby. Six of these zones have been picked out around England, and they're encouraging Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland to follow suit. The Wildlife Trust and the National Trust, representing 6 million members, called this plan a quote, unprecedented attack on nature. 
And in South America, Brazil continues to be its own Amazon rainforest deforestation records back to back. This month was the worst September for fires in Brazil's portion of the Amazon since 2010, according to government data published Monday. The National Space Research Agency reported 36,850 fires so far, which is a 120% spike from this time last year. August and September are considered the burning season there, where the agriculture and mining industries purposely light the forest on fire to clear space for industry operations. As I've said many times, the Amazon rainforest is a vital ecosystem for regional and global climate stability and biodiversity. The more these fires happen, the closer the ecosystem gets to reverting into a savanna where it would release more carbon than it takes up. Many parts of the rainforest already are net carbon sources at this point. Next week is Brazil's presidential election, where President Bolsonaro will run off against former President da Silva. Bolsonaro is an advocate for rainforest deforestation, while da Silva is an advocate for rainforest conservation. Even though da Silva is slated to win, Bolsonaro might not allow the transfer of power, and he has a lot of military support, so I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Finally, let's finish up today's episode with another update on the U.S. government spending bill, which West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin attached an energy permitting bill to. Republicans and progressive Democrats combined forces to reject Manchin's bill. Democrats did so because it would compromise environmental protections, and Republicans did so because they just frankly didn't want Manchin or Democrats to get another win. The spending bill did pass, though, so the government won't have to shut down. And that was your climate recap for Thursday, September 29th. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Beckosphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.